You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. For those of you who are viewing at home, we are in the book of Philippians again, and we're going to be wrapping up chapter 1. This evening we're going to talk about the issue of life and death. And there was a famous survey that came out years ago that asked people, what is your number one fear? First on the list was speaking publicly. The second common fear that people had was death. That's kind of weird. I mean, what would you rather do, die or give a short talk? According to this survey, most people would rather be laying in the casket than giving the eulogy. (laughs) Now, I think when you look at this survey, it sort of highlights the discomfort that we as a culture have with death. That we have trouble looking it squarely in the face. But I don't buy for a minute that most people would rather die than give a talk. I think it points to this fear that we have of actually answering the question, what happens when I die? Now, Paul in the book of Philippians gets to that at some point as as we look at our passage here. But first, he points out in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the entire Praetorian Guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters here in Rome have been confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago where Paul was in prison in Rome as he's writing the book of Philippians. And one of the things he points out is that because of his imprisonment, God was able to use this unfortunate circumstance to be able to advance the good news of Jesus Christ. He refers to this in these verses as the gospel, which most people don't use the word gospel anymore today, but the word gospel just simply means the good news. And contrary to what you might think about the Bible or Christianity, the Bible actually has good news for us. The Bible declares that we are all under judgment because of the moral wrongdoings we have committed. And that based on our trajectory in life, that we are headed toward eternal separation apart from God. But God, in his love and mercy, actually sent his son Jesus Christ to come and die and to pay for our moral wrongdoing so that through faith we can actually have a relationship with God and enjoy eternal life. So that's really the good news. God says, you don't have to do anything other than place your faith in Jesus and at that moment I can promise you eternal life. So he says that This unfortunate circumstance, what has happened to him, has actually served to advance the gospel. You would think if you were in Paul's situation that you might 
grumble about your circumstance or maybe even get angry at God because of what happened, that you're unjustly in prison under false allegations. But that's not the reaction that Paul had here. Instead, he actually rejoices. This letter, as we, we said a couple weeks ago, is actually called the letter of joy, which is ironic considering his circumstances. And instead of worrying and grumbling about his circumstances, instead, what Paul was able to do was write four letters that are included in the New Testament during this time, one of which is Philippians, the book we're actually reading. Not to mention, he says that this message of Jesus Christ was actually shared among the Praetorian Guard, which was a legion of soldiers in Rome, constituting about 5,000 men. And in addition to that, the believers in Rome who are already there, you know, Paul didn't plant this church, actually were emboldened to preach the gospel all the more just because of his mere presence and his encouragement. So Paul was able to see right away how God was able to use this terrible circumstance of his false imprisonment to move forward his work in the kingdom. He goes on to say in verses 15 through 17, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am here put, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm here in chains. So that's sort of a twist. He says that there are some people who are jealous and envious of the influence he's exerting there in Rome. And he says as a result that some were actually preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry and doing so in order to stir up trouble for him while he was in prison. Now, the circumstances in which this church was planted are actually pretty interesting. I mentioned that Paul didn't plant this church. What most historians and theologians actually believe is that the Roman church existed because on the day of Pentecost, many of the pilgrims who went there to Jerusalem eventually went back to their hometowns, and many of them went back to Rome, some of these Jewish Christians, and they actually planted the church there in Rome. So this church probably existed for several decades before Paul actually showed up in the city. So there, there were established leaders there, elders, and apparently some of them were getting really angry that Paul was having so much influence. You can imagine some of them sitting around and overhearing some of the believers there in Rome saying stuff like, oh my gosh, I sat through one of Paul's teachings. It was so life-changing. And they probably were sitting there like, what am I, chopped liver? I'm sure that they probably felt envious when they, when they were hearing about how many of the Praetorian guard were actually coming to Christ. So it's a little strange because I, you would normally think this kind of jealousy and envy 
isn't something that you would actually see in the church, especially when it comes to trying to serve God. And yet, one of the things you'll notice is that even though you may become a Christian and the Spirit of God enters your life, that doesn't necessarily mean that some of the problems you have simply disappear. It turns out some of that drive, that ego, the desire to be recognized and acknowledged is still there. Bill Lawrence, in his book, Effective Pastoring, talks about how many people live in what he calls deficit thinking. And deficit thinking is this belief that your whole sense of identity really centers around trying to build your success and achievement and that it's more important than your character. He points out in one point in his book, he says, you rarely hear people say, I'm far more loving at 40 than I expected. Instead, most people would say, I'm really disappointed that my church isn't big enough. They rarely acknowledge whether or not they have grown in their character. According to Lawrence, the deficit thinker wakes up each morning with a zero balance next to their identity and has to fill up that account by their success and achievement every single day. Otherwise, it further affirms the fact that they are a failure. And not surprisingly, that mentality, it can be easily channeled into our service toward God. Some might say, well, it doesn't seem like such a big deal that you would try to bring in a little bit of healthy competition into Christian ministry. I mean, after all, when you think about sports, a little healthy competition is not bad. It kind of motivates your teammates to kind of push themselves. I used to actually think that, but I started to realize how bringing that competition into this context of a loving community never really led to anything good and ended up alienating friends of mine and damaging relationships. Ken Blanchard, in his book, Lead Like Jesus, says, the need to compare and draw comfort from comparison to others is a sign of false pride, insecurity, and fear of inadequacy. When you foster internal competition and rivalries as a way of driving performance, they can erode relationships. He says, when you seek to determine your level of self-worth and security by comparison with other people, the end result is complacency or anxiety. In a larger sense, it devalues the promises and provisions of God who is already guaranteed that your value and your security is based on his unconditional love. Some of you might be sitting here and are identifying this same motive in your service to God. You find yourself getting irritated when you hear about someone in your home church who made an impact. You think to yourself, how is God blessing this person and their service to him when he doesn't have the competence or the skill level that I do? Or this person has all of these problems. Why is God blessing her ministry? If you feel that way, it probably identifies that deficit thinking that Bill Lawrence talks about. 
And instead of comparing yourself to other people, instead you need to focus on how God has given you security and value in Christ. And that's not ever going to change. And that was the kind of security and confidence that Paul had, even though a lot of the people within the Roman church were trying to preach out of rivalry and envy and trying to stir up trouble for him. He says in verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I can rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. So from Paul's perspective, he didn't care really what their motives were. What mattered was what God was doing through these people. I guess the question you need to ask yourself is, can you rejoice when God uses others powerfully? Can you be happy that God is advancing his kingdom even though it may not be specifically through you or that he's doing it mightily through somebody else? Another thing we should also consider is if we identify this motive of envy and rivalry that sort of fuels and motivates our service to God, I think it's important for us to realize that getting the word out is more important than our motives. I used to really struggle with this because I genuinely wanted to make a difference for God, but then I started to notice when I would look internally that part of my motivation was I wanted people to acknowledge that I was sweet or that I was really good at something. And that bothered me. And it's easy when you identify that sort of thing in your heart for it to paralyze you and to say, well, I'm not going to move forward until I fix my motives. Well, if that's the case, you're never going to move forward. Let me just tell you, the deeper you look, the more of these mixed motives you start to see. But the thing is, God does want to change your motives over time. What matters is that you step out in faith and God will take care of the rest. He'll transform your life if you're willing to look at, examine the issues that he's bringing up. Paul goes on in verse 19 and 20, he says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will actually turn out for my deliverance. Remember, Paul was facing death if he was found guilty before Caesar. Verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul is sitting here contemplating the possibility of his execution and death. And he says, whether it's through life or death, I trust that God will be exalted in my body. This word exalted literally means to magnify. And what he's saying is, I trust that no matter what the outcome is, he will glorify Jesus. He will magnify Jesus through my life or my death. Think about when you look out into the sky, you see this tiny little star. But when you get a telescope and you view it through the telescope, it magnifies the brilliance and magnificence of that star. Likewise, our lives or our death can actually magnify Jesus and his brilliance. 
He says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What an astounding statement. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you look at most people's lives in the world, you can simply look at it and determine whether or not their view of the afterlife actually shapes the way that they live. You could probably ask people this question, how would you fill out this? To live is blank and to die is blank. I think for some people they would say, to live is to feel good and to die is to feel nothing. This is what the hedonist or in Greek, ancient Greek philosophy, the Epicurean would say. The hedonist lives for pleasure, lives for excitement, lives for entertainment. For them, it's about partying. It's about getting drunk. It's about getting high. Or in some cases, it's about fine dining, eating the best food, drinking the best wine or alcohol. And to the hedonist, life is all about enjoying yourself and living for the here and now and not worrying about the future because the future is scary. It's not clear what it's going to feel like when you die. Some might say to live is money and possessions and to die is to leave it all behind. Many people in our culture today live for stockpiling more money and more possessions. And they do it for a variety of different reasons. Some to have comfort in their lives. Others to be able to measure that as a type of success compared to others. And still others try to stockpile money so that they can leave it for successive generations. But the realization is, one day, all of that money, it's going to run out. It's going to be gone. You know, Ecclesiastes uh, 5.15 says, From my mother's womb I came naked, and naked I will return to the ground. You see, all this money, all of these possessions that you are stockpiling, you can't take any of that with you. There was a famous story where somebody came up to uh, John Rockefeller and, or to, to his accountant after he died and said, so how much did he leave? And he famously said, all of it. You see, at the end of our lives, we're not going to be able to take any of that with us. Sure, we could probably leave some of that to our relatives and maybe if they're wise with your money and their money, they may be able to leave it to the next generation. But all of that effort in trying to stockpile money and possessions really leads to nothing because you have to leave it behind. Others say, well, to live is to have people like me and to die is to be forgotten. Some of us thrive on what people think about us. We obsess over it. it. It causes us anxiety. And when you think about 
even the most famous people in the world. Over several centuries, all memory of their existence is going to disappear. Maybe there'll be a trivia question or something like that. But think about it. Your life, even if you succeed in life, even if you do a lot of things to make this world different, within a few generations, your mark on this world won't exist. People won't remember who you are. Most of us can't even really name who our great-grandfather is. What about this one? To live is meaningless and to die is to cease existing. This is the nihilistic view of the world. You know, nihilism is not really a philosophy. It's more a feeling. And the feelings associated with nihilism are despair, anxiety, listlessness. To the nihilists, they essentially reject any philosophy or worldview. They reject any sort of value. And they reject any sort of meaning in life. You look at our culture today, and it, it appears that there is this growing sense of nihilism in our culture. It's shocking to see celebrities and musical artists either committing suicide, taking their lives, or having drug overdoses because of despair. I was thinking about that movie by Todd Phillip, Joker, where the main character is Arthur Fleck, who is this failed clown and stand-up comedian who descends more and more into nihilism and mental illness. And I believe that this is representative of the growing nihilism, the sense of meaninglessness that many people feel today. Another form of this could be existentialism. Nihilism is that nothing matters, whereas the existentialists say we can move beyond or above nihilism. And to, to the existentialists, you can derive a sense of meaning by concentrating on the mundane. Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous existentialist, writing in the 60s says, man can will nothing unless he first understood that he must count on no one but himself, that he is alone, abandoned on earth without help, with no other aim other than the one that he sets for himself, with no other destiny than the one he forges for himself on this earth. We're alone in this universe without any help. And the only way to gather a sense of meaning is to make it for yourself by concentrating on the mundane aspects of life, living day to day. Many in our culture today do this by trying to create a sense of identity through their unique experiences or struggles in life. For example, you see people who form their sense of identity being part of a marginalized group in society or identifying themselves based on their sexual identity or trying to form their sense of identity around the struggles related to their mental illness. Still others try to form a sense of identity, a sense of meaning 
by really concentrating on the tasks right in front of them. It's all about having a laser focus and just worrying about today, keeping your head down and doing the tasks that you need to perform for that day. Because there is this greater fear looming of what might happen in the future. What happens to me after I die? Still others descend into diversion where they try to distract themselves by just watching endless amount of Netflix or videos, going down those YouTube rabbit holes for hours and hours. And you're like, why am I watching boxing videos or videos of Mike Tyson talking trash to people in the 80s? How did I get here after five hours of sitting and watching YouTube videos? How does YouTube know what's, what, what's in my mind and what I want to see? <laughs> Still others say, well, to me, for me to live is to live for a cause. And to die is to hopefully leave a mark on society and culture. Many people, especially the younger generation, want to, to form their lives around a social cause or maybe to try to save the environment. Now, I think that doing something about global warming is a really great thing. And, that, you know, the people who decide that they want to form their lives around that, that is commendable. That's an important thing. And yet you have to ask yourself the question, if God doesn't exist, and this world that we live in eventually is going to freeze to death when our sun burns out, then what does it really matter? I remember seeing this interview back in the 80s where a TV reporter was interviewing people on the streets and he came up to this woman and he says, what do you think is one of the biggest dangers facing humanity today? And she said, if we don't do something about nuclear weapons, we're all going to die. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, lady, we're all going to die anyway. You see, if God doesn't exist, and if there really is no meaning and purpose to life beyond what I try to make it, then it doesn't matter what kind of cause you give your life to. That doesn't mean that that cause is unimportant, but at the end of the day, in the final calculation, what does it matter if God doesn't exist? Some would say to live is to be a good person and to die is to hope that it was good enough. This is the religious view of life. To the religious person, it's all about doing really good things and trying to hope that your final account is balanced so that God or the universe allows you to experience some level of paradise or heaven. Well, when you look at this, and you see yourself resonating with one of these, that is an indication that eternity hasn't shaped your life in any significant way, like it did the Apostle Paul. For him, looking at the final destination of being with Christ fueled his motivation to serve Christ all the more in this life. He says in verse 22 and 23, he says, 
if I'm going to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor to me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So you can see Paul having this internal wrestling match where he wants to be with Christ, but he also realizes there's so much more work to do here on earth. He says that once he dies, he's going to depart and be with Christ. And this is really an interesting thing because it suggests that Paul could face death squarely in the face without any sort of fear. You know, many people in our culture today are afraid to ask themselves the question, what's going to happen when I die? I remember talking to this guy who is a grad student from India. He visited our home church, really sharp guy, and he had, he had great English, so we had an awesome conversation. After the teaching, he came up, he came up to me and he said, you know, when you were giving that example about talking to a postdoc at OSU and asking him, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And he said, I don't know. I've never asked myself that question. He said, when you said that, that was describing me. I've never asked myself that question. What happens when I die? I can't think of the number of conversations that I have had that have been identical to the one I had with that guy. There have been so many. And you know, the thing is, all of the people that I, I encounter are typically very thoughtful. Some of them are, are intellectuals, people who are scholars, others who are at the top or the up top of their profession. And it, it boggles my mind when you ask them the question, so what do you think is going to happen when you die? And they're like, I've never thought about that. You realize unconsciously, they're avoiding that question because they're afraid. They don't know what the answer is. You might be sitting here realizing you have never asked yourself that question. And what I want to say to you is investigate that question. There is no other question with greater importance that you could ever answer in your life. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort. But there's a sense of urgency to getting that question answered. Because tomorrow is never guaranteed. The other thing to notice is it suggests that being with Christ, it points out to the fact that, that, that Christianity is a personal afterlife. There's a personal afterlife once we die. So contrary to what some people think where the afterlife is like soul sleep, that's not what's happening here. What Paul says is that when we die, we actually come into the presence of God immediately, that we're with Jesus. Now, you think about other worldviews and their view of the afterlife. For example, in Eastern religion, it's very impersonal. Under the Eastern worldview, there is this cyclical nature to life and death. 
And at the end of, of this cycle, which can probably span thousands of cycles of life and death, eventually your life is snuffed out like a candle. Or in the Hindu conception, your life is like a drop in a vast ocean. And so your existence gets merged into the all. In the Upanishads, it says, as rivers flow into the sea and in so doing lose name and form, even so the wise man, freed from name and form, attains the supreme being. In other words, your sense of self, your identity, your individuality disappears in the afterlife. Others see the afterlife as recycling organic matter. According to the atheistic naturalist view, we're all just big bags of biological material sloshing around. And one day, when we die, our lives are going to contribute to the fertilization and life of other beings or other animals or plant life. And so, when you think about it, from the atheistic point of view, what the atheist would say is, what really matters is the here and now and trying to make your life count because there's nothing after your life. And yet my question is, does it really matter? Does it matter that I do anything significant in this life with, if within a few generations all sign of my existence is completely gone? You know, the Apostle Paul agrees with the hedonists and says, if, if this life is the only life that's worth living, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He agrees. If there is no real afterlife, if there's nothing beyond this, then you might as well enjoy your life now. But if there is something out there after you die, that changes the whole calculation, doesn't it? If God does exist, if our relationships that we have now can actually become eternal relationships, then what happens is our value system shifts suddenly so that living for money or possessions or pleasure, those things seem really insignificant compared to the eternal glory that we can experience as we enter the presence of God amidst our friends who we knew here on earth. He says, I'm torn because I desire to depart. And he's actually using a nautical term here. To depart is what they would use when somebody would get onto a ship to set sail. And so Paul is looking at his life and he's saying to himself and to the Philippians, I could be setting sail here soon. And this reminds me of that final scene in Lord of the Rings where, you know, Gandalf is talking to Sam and his friends and he's saying his farewells because he's going to leave the Shire. And there's, they're there at the dock and it's this tearful goodbye. And as he's walking away, he turns back and he says, Frodo, are you coming? And to Sam and his friends' 
shock and horror. They, they, they didn't realize that Frodo was going to be leaving too. And so they embrace each other. And there's this really emotional moment there as they're saying goodbye to each other. But as Frodo boards the ship, he looks back and instantly his sadness is transformed to joy and happiness. That's kind of the imagery that Paul is trying to paint for us here. You know, some of us have seen some of our friends, our loved ones, depart to be with Christ. And at times, it was confusing for us. It may still be confusing as to why God took them. And over the years and over the decades, we're going to find more and more of our friends and our family departing to be with Christ until one day we are going to depart as well. That ship's going to come for us. And one of the promises that God has is that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, that when you enter into his eternal dwelling, you will be surrounded by those who have gone before you. And that you will all be able to celebrate being with the person who you love most, and that's Jesus Christ. He says in verse 24 and 25, he, he says, It's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul was convinced that even though he wanted to depart and be with Christ, that it was better for, for him to stay on. And as it turns out, he did for a few more years. You see, Paul lived his life for Christ because his value system was shaped by eternity. He let that govern what he did. And I guess the question I want to ask you is, are you allowing your view of the afterlife, your hope of being with Christ one day, motivate you and determine how you live your life now? Maybe you're just not really thinking about what awaits you in the future, what the afterlife looks like. Maybe what you need to do is you need to spend some time reflecting on that, studying about it, because you're going to be spending a lot of time with God. It's worth getting to, getting to know what that's going to be like. And finally, the clarity with which Paul saw his future destiny gave him focus that's why he was able to say, for me to live is Christ. It's because he knew that one day he would depart and be with Jesus. I want to leave you with one story that just has always struck me. In 1952, there was this woman named Florence Chadwick. And she was famous because she was the first woman who swam the English Channel. In 1952, she embarked to try to swim from the island of Catalina on, off the coast of California all the way to the mainland. And she was swimming on a day where it was incredibly foggy. So foggy, in fact, that as she was swimming, she could barely see all of the boats that were accompanying her on her swim. After 15 hours 
of swimming. 15 hours, exhausted and discouraged, she called out to her mother, I want to give up. Bring me into the boat. And her mom kept, kept pleading with her. She said, you're so close. Just keep swimming. I promise that you're going to get there. But finally she gave up and climbed into the boat. And as she approached the shore, she had realized that she was only a half a mile away. Later on, they interviewed her and asked, what did you think about your failed attempt at trying to swim from Catalina to the coast of California? And she said, if I had only known, if I could only see the shore, I would have made it. And for us, seeing the shore is seeing Jesus. It's about seeing that life after this one and seeing it with clarity and that that is going to be the thing that really motivates and drives us to live for Christ all the more. Thank you that we can stare death in the face and not be afraid. I'm struck by how many stories I've heard of uh, people who are believers in you, who in their final moments are not afraid and look with great anticipation to see you face to face. I pray, God, that we uh, can cultivate this attitude of having an eternal focus and that it would really shape our values and the way that we live here on earth. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.